All right, good morning. That was the shortest greeting ever. Usually I have a little bit of time buffer, but I guess everyone literally just said hi, so I'll take that. Uh, good morning. Thankful to be worshiping God with you on this beautiful day. If you don't know me, my name is Sam. I am one of the pastors here on staff and always a privilege to share God's word. I ne never take it for granted, especially in person. If you're new or visiting, uh, we want to welcome you, obviously. And uh, we are going straight into a new series titled The Five Loves. Uh, if you guys may have heard something like that before, it's because there's also a famous book called The Five Love Languages. We are definitely not talking about that per se. Uh, rather, the pastoral staff, we thought it would be appropriate to take this season where a lot of us have been detached from the Christian faith and maybe rethinking even the Christian faith in a lot of ways. We thought it would be helpful to go back to the foundation of what it even means to be Christian. And I would argue if you really get to the bottom of the bottom of what it means to be Christian, and you really try to extract the essence of Christianity, it is actually quite simply about love, as cliche as that may sound. Now, whether you grew up in the church or if you're new to the Christian faith, I will want to admit that it is easy to make Christianity into something complicated or something more complex than it really needs to be. I mean, we can make Christianity and we can get caught up into making it about the glitz and the glamour. I know we have a lot of announcements and, you know, in some sense it could seem like a, a, a club. Like, oh, we have this vacation Bible school. We have these service opportunities. We have these exciting things that we're doing, these programs and events. Or maybe your experience is that, oh, Christianity seems like this long list of rules and prohibitions where uh, you can't drink, you can't smoke, or you have to go on missions, you have to go overseas. And I would say, actually, all those things, though they are extensions, 1 Corinthians 13 makes it crystal clear, no matter what you do as a Christian, all of it is purposeless and meaningless if it's not done out of love. Paul gets to the bottom of the bottom in 1 Corinthians 13 and says the importance of the Christian spiritual posture far supersedes the importance of the Christian practice. In fact, at the end of his powerful exposition in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, look, there's like three major words to describe the Christian faith. Faith, hope, and love. And amongst the top three, the greatest of these is love. In the New Testament, Jesus himself, he affirms this in Matthew 22, verse 36. A teacher of the law, basically someone who knows this Bible very well, comes up to Jesus and he, he asks him this profound question that maybe you're asking if you're not a Christian, which is, hey, what is... If you can kind of distill all of this into like one sentence, what is the greatest commandment of all? A modern way to ask that would be if you had just one tweet, one tweet to describe what is Christianity really about? And Jesus answers. He doesn't hesitate. He says in verse, 20, uh, verse 37, he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. In other words, if you boil it down, what God, the God of Scripture, the Christian God calls his people to is best captured not with the words and language of your service or your obedience or your sacrifice or even your submission. Even though those are biblical and important, I would argue that the implications of Christian living all flow out of the soil and foundation of love. Love. Now, love is a very broad idea and term. Maybe all of us have different understandings, experiences, and even definitions of love. But I will argue when we say love, when the scripture talks about love, it is not this unclear, arbitrary, free-for-all idea that is free for you to define and for you to practice how you think it should be. But actually the Bible gives very concrete definitions and concrete instructions 
to love in very specific ways to very specific people. And so that's what this series is all about. Starting today and for the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at five major relational contexts that the Bible is very clear on how Christians are to practice love, which is love for God, love for one another, love for our family, love for our neighbors, and the fun one at the end, love for our enemies, which I would say is a distinctly Christian call. So that is all by way of introduction to the series. So kick it off. We're going to look at the most foundational text for the great command in Matthew that I just read, which is to love God. And that comes from Deuteronomy 6. So if you have your Bibles or your programs, let's read our text for our sermon. Deuteronomy 6, we're going to read verse 4, all the way to verse 15. But I'm a big fan of having the Bible open because I will always reference other aspects of the text. So please open your, your programs or your Bibles to Deuteronomy 6. And we'll read God's word starting from verse Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, this is the reading of God's word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God, you shall fear him. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord our God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. Amen. It's the reading of God's word. Let me briefly pray for us, if you don't mind. Father, we open your word and we know that it is only by your spirit that our ears and our hearts will be open to actually digest it in a meaningful way that will not just be a one-hour mere exercise of listening to words, but something that would convict and transform us. And no one has the power to do that except you and your word. So bless us at this time to really get to the bottom of what it means to follow and love you in the way that you call us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I had the privilege to attend a wedding yesterday, and weddings are uh, that much more exciting coming out of COVID because obviously a lot of them got postponed, a lot of them got canceled. Yeah, I never thought that some people would have to experience weddings virtually through Zoom. And no one questions that weddings are beautiful because they are a day dedicated and devoted to love, love between two people. And growing up, uh, we used to always have this funny saying as kids, which is when someone would say, I love this. Or I love that. I don't know if you guys used to say this. We would always say, well, if you love it so much, you should marry it. And we say it about everything. It's like, oh, I love love Cheerios. Well, if you love it so much, you should marry it. It makes absolutely no sense, but that's what we would say. And I realized, oh, why do we say that as kids? I think the reason we're saying that is because even though it's silly, we intrinsically know, starting even from an early age, wow, love becomes truly meaningful and it has weight when it actually starts to manifest itself in a tangible way like marriage. That's why we say, man, if you really love it, take it to the next level. Prove it. Get married to it. That's why we say that. That's why when a couple is in love, they don't just stay in this 
stalemated state of just verbally affirming, I love you, I love you, I love you. But when it becomes weighty and meaningful, it manifests in a tangible expression, a.k.a. the wedding vow that says, because I love you, I want to take it a step further and manifest it in this commitment to you. That I want to love you and serve you and no one else. In other words, I would argue it's fair to say for love to be meaningful and weighty, it has to move beyond sentiment. I think we would all agree that. Hopefully you guys can agree based off that simple illustration. It has to become more concrete. It has to look visible and tangible. Now let's slightly shift gears and let me ask this. If you're a Christian sitting here today, especially after a long year where maybe you, you're curious how you're doing with God in your faith. Simple question is this, do you love God? Do you love God? Not are you Christian, not do you read the Bible, not do you pray, not do you grow up in the church, not how long have you been a Christian. Simply, do you love God right now? And I think most people are used to growing up in the church, you'll say, of course I love God. I'm a Christian. Out of habit, you almost say that. But I'll take it a step further and say, okay, if you love God, what does your love for God look like? What does it mean that you love God? And if you aren't a Christian... Or if you're exploring Christianity, I'm glad you're here today and for this entire series because we're going to start to unpack and delve into what the Bible has to say about what does it actually mean to love God and what does loving God look like in the life of the Christian. And my hope is that as we consider that, maybe for a lot of us, as we even take communion later, it's to reconsider and recalibrate our love for God. To be challenged, wow, so far when I say I love God, it doesn't mean anything. It's mere words. But for others of us, maybe you'll discover for the first time a conviction to love this God who calls us to love him. So based off the text, I'm going to draw out four aspects that I think what the text is saying love for God should look like. And I'm going to say these four aspects move just loving God to moving God uh, to loving God meaningfully. So the four are this. I'll give you them first. Number one, to love him means you have to love him truthfully. Second, you have to love him holistically. Third, you need to love him unconditionally. And four, which is going to be a kind of interesting one, you have to love him responsively. So let's get through it as quick as we can. Number one, love him truthfully. Now, before we get into the text, it's actually helpful to know the context of Deuteronomy 6. Because this is not just any other text in scripture. But if you ask any Israelite or any of God's chosen people back in that day, what is kind of the most pivotal verse or text for the nation of Israel as you follow God, they would have all said it is Deuteronomy 6.4. Why? Deuteronomy 6.4, which was called the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. The first word of this verse is hear. And the Jews would pray this every morning and every evening. This was their mantra. This was their every spiritual tweet that they would say every single morning and evening. And the word Shema here, it's not what we might think here, which is just in, intaking words through your ears. But to Shema, more accurately translates as to listen intently to pay attention to, and to respond to what you hear. So in a lot of us, for example, we've been shamaing what the CDC has to say very carefully. Why? Because we're not just hearing, but what the CDC says about the nature of how COVID's going, our mandates, we pay attention and it actually affects us in the way that we respond to it. And so in verse 4 in the Shema, we see the first aspect of loving God. Quite simply, he says, Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What's going on here? Let me break it down quite simply. In Israelite context, it's important to note, it was without question commonly accepted there were many, many gods. 
So depending on your region where you lived, depending on your family, your values and the religion of your family, pluralism, which is the worship of many gods, and syncretism, which is the mixture of worship and religion, was the culture of the day. That's just the nature of how Israel lived. And what God is saying here is, no, no, get rid of all of that worldly stuff. Shema here, I am the one true living God. I am a real personal God that has real personal traits. In other words, I'm not just an idol that's made up by man. I'm not a man-made construct. I alone am the one true God. Now, what's so significant of this confession and what does it have to do with love? This is an illustration I love to use. What if I told you, man, I love my wife and I really, really miss her. And you said, because you don't know me or her that well, oh, that's so sweet, Sam. You love her so much. Tell me about her and what you miss about her. And I said, well, for starters, I love that she has beautiful green eyes. I don't know any other Korean lady that has green eyes like her. They sparkle when she looks at me. I love the fact that she's taller than me so she can get stuff off the shelf for me because I can't reach it. I love her golden blonde hair and it shines in the sun. And I love the fact that she loves watching anime with me. It's such a rare thing. I love anime and I just found a crown jewel and a girl who loves it. And you said, oh, wow, you must really love her. What's her name again? And I told you, I don't remember her name, but she is a woman and she is a wife. Now, this might sound like love, but even if you took a simple glance at my real wife, who is here, I'm, some of you guys, if you don't know me, you're probably looking like, I don't see no one with the green eyes that's taller than Sam. If you even got a glance at her, you wouldn't think I love her. You would think our pastor is cheating on his wife, or he clearly doesn't love her because he clearly hasn't taken the time to get to realize who she really is. She has brown eyes. She is actually much shorter than me. She has dark hair, and she definitely don't like watching anime. And her name is Angela. She has a name. In other words, she's a real person. You can't just make stuff up about real people. They have real traits, real desires, real characteristics. And to honor and love a real person, you just can't fabricate stuff because you want to. You need to discover them for who they really are and who they reveal themselves to be. And then your love unlocks to love them for those things. In a nutshell, that is what's going on in the first part of the Shema. Israel would remind themselves daily, we need to pay attention carefully and respond to the fact that our God, Yahweh the God of Israel, he's not just some man-made construct or idol like the other gods. He's a real and living personal God. He is not made up, a.k.a. we can't just make stuff up about him, but he has revealed himself actually and truly of who he really is. How? Through his word. In other words, if you don't know the Bible, you don't know God. That's as quite simple as it is. It blows my mind when I ask people, do you love God? And they, they say yes. And I say, okay, so do you read his word? And they say no. I say, how do you love something or someone you don't know? It's impossible. And yet people say it all the time. And I think it's because when, when people say they love God, do you know what he says about himself? What, he ple what is pleasing to him? Or what angers him? Christians, we don't love an idea. We don't love a man-made concept. We love a real personal God who has actually revealed himself in his word. So that's the first aspect. You need to love him meaningfully by loving him truthfully for who he really is, not who we want him to be or who we think he is 
quite simple. Number two, we need to love him holistically. See, in our modern age, I think the common way people define love is usually, understandably, because the way movies portray it and the way it's seen and, you know, like dramas and Hollywood, we think love is this emotional feeling that we feel. So when a cute guy or a cute girl walks by and you feel these butterflies and flutters in your stomach, you wonder, oh, is this love? Am I beginning to feel love? And it's with this shallow understanding of love that a lot of people say, I, I do love God. And what they're really saying is, when I praise God or when I think about God, I get this warm, fuzzy feeling sometimes. And that's, that's love. I love God. And, and because of the nature that we live in, if I question that, they say, who are you to question the authenticity of my love? How do you know if I really love? And they cancel me, right? Canceled. Well, my own opinion aside, let's actually see the nature of how God himself calls us to love him. Verse 5, the heart of the Shema, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now let's break down here very simply. In Hebrew understanding the heart, it represented far more than emotions. The Hebrews actually didn't have a well-fleshed out understanding of the mind. So to them, heart was equivalent to all that you are, it was the control center of your being, including much more than just emotion. And if that wasn't enough, the word soul refers to the entire self. So all that you are on the inside, everything that you are as a person, and lastly, the word might, which I can't get into too detail, but it's actually better translated resources. So not, not only all that you are, the all that you are as a person, but I would say might is better translated in all that you have as resources and notice the repetitive emphasis on the extent. It would have been enough and comprehensive, don't you think, to say, love God with your heart, soul, and might. That would already communicate this is an all-encompassing type of love. But it says, with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. In other words, to love God meaningfully, the Bible says we are to love God with all that we are, all that we have. It is a holistic, all-encompassing, all-inclusive type of love. And if you're curious what that looks like, the text elaborates just how comprehensive it really is. Look at verse 6. It says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So take the words of God. And verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, aka your private life, when you walk by the way, your public life, when you lie down and when you rise, every second of your waking day, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, hands act, so in your actions, they shall be as frontlet between your eyes, aka what you think about, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house, aka your family life, and if that's not enough, and on the gates of the city, which is your economic, your political, your civic life. In other words, to love God with all your heart, soul, and might means you love God in a way that he influences and permeates your private life, your public life, your inner life, your outer life, your personal familial life, your pro professional corporate life. That's what it means to truly love God in a meaningful way. And I don't think it's hard to get you to agree with this because how strange would it be if I told you I love my wife Angela so much on Sundays. But on Monday to Friday, I take a break from loving her. That's not love. I don't know what that is. This is a contractual obligation. It might be something like that. But how strange would it be if, if I did that? Or if I told her, oh, I only love her in that way. I only love her sometimes. That would make absolutely no 
sense. So if I told my wife, you know, the way I love you, it's only uh, certain times or certain aspects of you. Or, you know, we only do that when, you know, my iPad is going a little funky. Never thought this would happen. So it's the spirit of God. We will continue to move forward. So that would make absolutely no sense. And what God is saying is he needs us to love him in that way. So that is number two. So we need to love him with all that we are and all that we have. It makes absolutely no sense to do otherwise. Now, moving forward, I'm going to... Never thought this would happen. So we're going to have to take a little bit of an audible here. As my iPad cools down, here we go. The sermon might get a little bit shorter as I gather myself. No problem here. That's number two. Love the Lord your God holistically. Now I'm going to go straight into number three, which is not love him truthfully, not love him just holistically, but you need to love him unconditionally. What do I mean by love him unconditionally? You see, the issue with a lot of us is the way that we love God, we attach conditions to it. And what do I mean by that? We say we love God if. We love God if he'll do this. We love God if he'll do that. And the problem that faced the Israelites, if you look at Deuteronomy 6, it says in verse 10, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, what's going to happen is before you were loving God and you were chasing after him because in the wilderness he provided for you. He gave you manna, he gave you food, and you needed him, and so you were desperate for him and you came to him. But he's saying now, as you enter into the promised land, there's a problem that's going to happen. And it is the problem that I think is all relevant for us today is the problem of prosperity. There's nothing like prosperity that lulls the Christian more into a state of lovelessness and complacency when it comes to your relationship with God. See, in Deuteronomy 6, it says, when you go and you have houses full of good things you did not fill, and cisterns you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees you did not plant, verse 12, take care lest you forget the Lord. A lot of Christians I talk to today, the issue is not so much that you blatantly hate God or that you blatantly rebel against God. It's that you simply forget God. Why? You just don't need him. There's no practical functional need for you in him. And, you know, I think our church, especially the reason this is the case is, man, some of us, we, well, all of us live in a very suburban, middle-class, comfortable time in Orange County. Some of us live in Irvine, which is the second safest city in the United States, where the greatest danger you probably face is a parking ticket or maybe rough roads. And so really, what do you need God for? And that's what God is saying. God is saying the great danger in our complacency is when we forget our need for God and forget that all that we have in the first place is a blessing and gift from him. For example, I talk to a lot of people and they say, well, I'm pretty comfortable. I got myself to a place in life where I don't really need much. You know, I have a good job. Uh, I'm married or I'm in a good relationship. Uh, I feel I could buy a house in a few years. And although those things are great, and I don't want to trivialize how hard you've worked, you need to recognize and realize what Scripture is saying is who put you in that position in the first place? Who's the one that got you there? And you say, well, it was me. 
I put in the work, I got the grades, I studied hard, and I say, that's great. Well, you could have quite simply been born in Papua New Guinea as a handicapped person, and all your efforts would mean nothing. Absolutely nothing. And so even in our endeavors and our efforts, we need to recognize it is God who has placed us there, and we need to love him unconditionally in the sense of both in want, but also in plenty. That was the challenge for Israel. And I think that's a challenge for a lot of us. See, a lot of us, I hear, the times you go to God are when you are desperate, when you are in need. I did college ministry for a long time, and probably Director Shim will face this too. There's never a time a student loves God more than when they break up. Oh, Pastor Sam, tell me what book to read. I need to pray. I'm going to fast. Why? I've never needed God so much more. Why? Because I broke up. Really? The second they get in a relationship, hey, where'd that love for God go? Oh, you know, it was just a season. It was a season. It's gone now. Plenty and in want is your love unconditional. And second and more importantly, unconditional love for God in the sense that do you trust him both in clarity and in confusion? Here's what I mean by that. A lot of us have no problem loving and trusting when the terms are clear. If I tell you, you know, you're going to go through things in your life, and the reason you need to love God is because he's going to put you through A, B, and C, and here's the reasons why he's going to put you through A, B, and C. You see, a lot of us, we have conditions, but if I could boil down what I think a lot of the people's condition is when it comes to following God, I just need to know why. When you're going through three moments of suffering, the greatest question you're going to probably ask God is, okay, God, I get that you're doing this. Can you just tell me why, though? Can you explain why I need to go through this? Can you explain the extent of the suffering that you're putting me through? I mean, even COVID has taken a big number on people. I'm going to attend a funeral this Monday, and a lot of us have in situations that we would not have preferred to. And all we want to know is, I get God, you're sovereign and you're doing things, but why? And what I mean by unconditional love for him is can you love him without knowing the why? Elizabeth Elliot was a famous Christian sister in the faith, a famous writer, and she was married three times, not because she's unfaithful, but because by age 48, two of her husbands were taken from her. They died. The first is famous Jim Elliot. He was speared in his 20 on the mission field. The second died at a premature age. And so she married three times. So if there's anyone who understands the, the insatiable desire to want to know why God is doing things in her life. It was Elizabeth Elliot. And she explains, as she's thinking about loving God unconditionally, she gives this beautiful illustration, which I'm going to try my best not to butcher. And she says she visited her friends who owned, the, who owned sheep. So they were shepherds in the UK, in northern Wales. And when she visited them, she visited in the time of the year where they did this very interesting practice, where if you had no idea what was going on, it literally would seem like torture to the sheep. Because basically, if you didn't know, sheep, they need to once a year be submerged into a tub and a container of antiseptic. Because if not, they'll slowly get eaten away by parasites and by disease. So once a year, the shepherd takes all his sheep and they get this huge container of antiseptic. And they literally, from the outside, drown them. And so Elizabeth Elliot goes there and she basically describes, which I can't do word for word because I don't have it here. But she describes how her friend, she would submerge the sheep. And the sheep would be fighting and fighting and trying to get out. The dog is barking at them to get back in the water and the septic. They're looking at the shepherd. And in the sheep's eyes, the shepherd is their Lord and their God. And thinking, hello, God, what are you doing to me? You're killing me. You're drowning me. As the shepherd would lovingly submerge them again. 
And Elizabeth Elliot's like, I have never felt more pity than in that moment for that sheep. They have absolutely no idea what is going on. They are probably questioning the love and the trust they should have in their shepherd or their version of God. And she looks at that illustration and she says, I, I realized something profound in that moment. Two things could happen with the sheep. Either they get submerged in the antiseptic and live, or they don't and they die. But one thing that can never happen is the sheep can never understand any explanation given by the shepherd. That's a limitation. There's no way that the shepherd can adequately comfort and explain why he's doing what he's doing to the sheep. But he still has to do it. That's what it means to be a good and loving shepherd. And so basically she looks at that and she says, wow, the gap between a sheep and the shepherd is a minor, minuscule gap compared to the gap between me and my God. His ways are higher than mine. His thoughts are higher than mine. And if a shepherd cannot comfort and explain to the sheep why he needs to do what he needs to do to rescue, to save, and to heal, we are as sheep, as Scripture says, and God is our good shepherd. And so I wonder, unconditionally, not only in plenty and in want, but can we love God both in clarity, which is easier to do, but also in confusion, without maybe the adequate explanation that we would hope for or that we would want. And it works now. So let's continue, and we'll go to the rest of number three. So first, love God truthfully. Second, we need to love God holistically. And third, we need to love God unconditionally. Now, the, those three are good things, and let me close by loving him responsively. And I think this is actually the best part of it. So maybe this was God's way of making me focus on this point. Because there was a lot of other ones, and you guys are probably like, praise God. <laughs> it's getting hot. So number four, love God responsively. Deuteronomy 6, it ends in a very interesting way. You see, because after laying out the command to love, the author, he describes this conversation that takes place between a child and a father. Because it's one thing for you as parents, you're following God, you're loving God, but one day your kid's going to come up to you, and maybe it already has happened, and the verse says their son's going to ask, okay, so dad, mom, I see that you love God and you're following him, but why should I? What's the reason I should follow him? Now, whether you're a parent or just an older sister in the faith, how would you answer that question? Why should I follow God? And guarantee you in the day and age we live in now, every kid's going to ask that question. And I asked that question too growing up, and in a very prototypical fashion as a pastor's child, do you know what answer I got? Sam, you need to love and obey God because he's God. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, how are you supposed to go against that? Or you need to obey God because if you don't obey him, you're going to face punishment, you're going to face consequence, or you're going to go to this place called hell. And so in other words, the explanation of why I should love God and obey him was justified by a law, by a consequence. If you don't do this, that's going to happen. Now, this explanation rationale, it might work until your kids or a kid is maybe 18. Maybe the sheer fear of not wanting to go to hell might take them there. But you know what we're realizing more and more today? That answer does not fly. It simply does not satisfy in the long term because it is based on consequence and not conviction. 
But if you read Deuteronomy, the way it explains is very interesting in verse 21. It says, Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed us signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always. In other words, the son asks, why should I follow God's command? Why should I love him? And here's what the father does in the most loving way. In Israel's understanding of the gospel, he says, because we were slaves. That's what he says. Do you understand that? We were slaves in bondage, helpless and desperate. And God intervened into human history and rescued and delivered us from bondage. And as the father maybe unfolds the story, the son might ask, okay, so what did that look like? How did that happen? How were you rescued and delivered? And that's where you might think, did you guys fight your way out? Was it your own efforts that re released you from bondage? And that's where the father would say, no. The Lord showed up in judgment to Egypt. And in the final straw of what got us out, an angel of death comes and judges everyone. And the son asks, judges them according to what? And he'll say, judges them according to their sin. According to their failure to obey God. And the son would then ask, don't we all do that? And the father would say, ah, yes, I'm glad you ask. The reason we were spared, it's not because we did anything, but the Lord actually had us do something interesting. He had us kill a spotless lamb and paint the doorpost of our home with blood. And because of that, instead of dying, we were rescued and delivered. Notice, all of this is not an explanation of consequence or law. It's a story. The way that you meaningfully explain why should someone love God is not a list of statutes or rules. It's not your logic. It is a story of rescue and deliverance. And the Shema, for all, even today, the Jews still recite it. We love the Lord our God, the Lord who is one, because he rescued us. He delivered us. And that was proof that always, as the verse says, everything he commands us is for our good always, which is the Old Testament version of Romans 8.28. All things work together for the good of those who love him. Now, in a similar way, if you ask me, and this was really my dilemma, because I'm like, man, I feel like we're living in a day and age where I mean, my wife will tell you, I struggle to preach these days because, man, everything feels so fake. Everything feels so fabricated. Like, I think even myself and all my close friends, we're all kind of questioning cultural Christianity because, again, I, think, I literally think we were like mindless robots before COVID happened where Sundays you just go to church. Do you love God? Yes, I love God. Are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. And, but now it's kind of like that doesn't fly anymore because everyone's kind of been detoxified in this past year. And now it's almost like people have an extra sensitivity to what is fabricated or fake. You're seeing countless Christians, especially young Christians, they are starting to deconstruct and question everything that has happened. And what's, what they're finding out is their church experience, so much of it is riddled with nothing to do with who God is and what he actually calls us to. And it is a, a pretty big tragedy. And I myself found myself, man, what is Christianity? What am I trying to really tell these people? And I realized just like Deuteronomy, if you ask me, Sam, why do you love God? 
I've come to realize I shouldn't say because I have to, because I'm a pastor, or even because God commands me to. I'll tell you why I love God. I love God because in the depths of my sin and my brokenness, God came into my life and unbeknownst to me for some reason, he rescued me and forgave me of my sin by the blood that was shed by his son, Jesus Christ. And so I realized the question is not so much why should I love God, but for the real Christian, you've asked the proper question is why does God ever love me? We've taken the universal question of the gospel and flipped it on the creator when he should be looking at us and say, why should I love you? And I can't answer why he does. To this day, I've been a Christian for a long time, I cannot find one redeeming reason why God should actually love me. I fail every day to obey his commands. I don't love my wife as I should. I don't parent as I should. Even though I preach here, I don't read the Bible as faithfully as I should. I'm not evangelizing every day as I should. And so if you really push me to a corner and say, man, why does God love you? I don't know. That's the honest answer. But what I can tell you is, but I know that he does. Because on a different version of a wooden beam, which was not a doorpost, but on the cross of Christ, that was historical, tangible proof and evidence that God is not just a loving God in sentiment, but he is a loving God in action. And on the cross of Christ, through the blood of Jesus Christ, he says, I do love you. I do love you. And it's a mystery. It is the Christian mystery. That's one question I cannot ask. If a person that's new to the faith comes to me and says, hey, so I get all of this, why does God love me? I'll say, quite frankly, I don't know, but I know that he does. Because you see, if the greatest command for Christianity, and we'll close here, is to love God with all that we are and all that we have, in a sense, the greatest transgression for the Christian is to fail to love God. That is the greatest transgression. And the gospel is this, that instead of punishing us for that transgression, God himself loves us in the way that we were supposed to love him, which is what? Truthfully and intimately. He knows us. He's not loving some fabricated version or some ideal version of us that some of us do when we get into a dating relationship and we're like, you're not who I thought I was. God knows the death of our sins yet loves us the same. He loves us holistically with all of himself. He who did not forsake his own son, why would he not give us all things? We are blessed with every spiritual blessing. He does not hold back in his love. And number three, God loves us unconditionally because there's nothing you can do to unearn God's love because you didn't earn it in the first place. And so God himself loves us in this way. And it's only when the love of God not the commands of God, not even the character of God, not the practices of Christianity, not even the programs in the church, but the love, the penetrating, genuine love of a personal and real God, when it penetrates into your heart through all of the fluff, through all of the cultural stuff that really has nothing to do with Christianity, it's only then that you start to get it as a Christian. And it's only then where you start to realize what the Christian life actually is, which is our love for God is responsive. What do I mean by that? It means that we love because we've been loved. We love because God has first loved us. And from that flows everything else in the Christian life. The sacrifice, the surrender, the service. And so many people in our church are hurting right now because they've got the order flipped. 
myself included. You serve God, you sacrifice for God, you worship God, but you don't love God. So it's so hard. It's like pulling teeth. Why? It's really hard to sacrifice for someone you don't love. And Satan knows if he gets to the love, everything else is a sham. So that's where I would say, as we begin this series, understand the flow of all the fountain of Christian life begins with love the Lord your God, truthfully, holistically, unconditionally, not just arbitrarily out of thin air, but because that is the very heart of what he has done for us and what God wants most from us more than anything else. He doesn't want your time. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't want your efforts, your will, your submission. What he wants is your love. Because that's what he has given. Let's pray together.